There's no doubt that the world is going crazy right now. First, it was the coronavirus. Social isolation had us staying in our homes and turned our lives upside down. Some of us lost our jobs. Some who lived alone suffered through extreme isolation, while others had their families and roommates drive them insane. The economy suffered. Then on top of all of that, add in what happened to George Floyd, a black man murdered by the police. It was kindling in a world already on the verge of exploding. Protests erupted around the world. In light of this, today we're looking at the role of online community and technology in the face of what's going on. Had all of this happened a decade ago, things would have been very different. But today, we have the ability to communicate with a large community of people we don't even know instantaneously. This is changing our definition of community, personal interaction, and society in this already charged time. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to our society, economy, history, philosophy, ethics, and our lives. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. The supporters of this podcast will have access to some bonus content. Check this out at the Patreon page. And if you're not a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash sparkdialogue or our website at sparkdialogue.com to find out more. Hi, I'm Chantel Gabrielle Bugs, and I'm an assistant professor of sociology and African-American studies at Florida State University. In this era of the coronavirus, people are stuck at home. We're all dealing with our unique challenges. But those of us that are single may be living alone and interested in finding that special someone might be asking right now, how can I continue to meet people when I can't go to the bar, to the dog park, or to the church? How can I date someone when going out to dinner and a movie isn't an option? And it may not be an option for a very long time. To deal with this, a lot of people are turning to online dating. To give you a heads up in some of the conversation that follows, you can hear Chantel's pet dog, Saba, a new puppy that she is taking care of through the quarantine. Saba is Arabic for a quiet breeze, but unfortunately, Saba makes a little bit more noise than a quiet breeze in this podcast episode, especially when it grabs its squeaky toy halfway through. I hope you'll understand this little bit of an interruption. People who have what we call thin dating markets are the people who are going to be the most likely to use these online dating spaces to find people to date anyway, because it's harder to find them in just kind of their everyday life. So older populations, more kind of rural, isolated populations, uh, and then obviously uh, LGBTQ populations. Um, So I think where we're probably seeing the shifts are for the people who didn't have those kinds of thin market limitations. Now they can't go out to the social spaces that they used to where they could meet people. So they're kind of limited to uh, the dating apps or other kinds of, you know, online media in order to build connections. Not only is online dating a way to meet people from the comfort and germ-free environment of our homes, but it's also a way that people are building the first foundation of their relationships. I think what is probably also, I think, really interesting, I guess, about what's shifting is, you know, you would meet or match on the apps and then you would, you know, maybe agree to go get a drink or get a coffee or, you know, something in person, right. And get kind of those early conversations out of the way then. Uh, and now people are doing those dates via 
chats. So they're having, you know, Zoom dates or Skype dates or, you know, Google Hangouts or whatever that they're using um, to kind of get to know people better. And it's interesting because like, so I think it's Washington Post has this thing that they do called Date Lab, where they send people out on blind dates. Um, and so obviously during a pandemic, you can't send people out on the blind dates, but they're basically setting people up still. They're just doing them as Zoom dates. And so it, it definitely, I think, kind of changes the the quality of the interaction in some ways. Will this change how we date? When your options to date are talking over Zoom rather than the, let's say, more physical aspects of a relationship, maybe people will take this opportunity actually to get to know each other more at the beginning of their relationships. Perhaps this will work. And perhaps it'll shift how we think about dating and bring about a long-lasting change, at least in certain people's lives. There has to be a greater emphasis on, you know, kind of talking and learning someone's personality and all of those other kinds of things, because you're not going to be able to do as much physical interacting. And I think probably kind of the, the biggest things is like people's, you know, kind of perhaps, I guess, greater feelings of isolation because they can't do the hookup aspects of what they used to do before the pandemic. Yeah, I think it's kind of multiple areas where this is kind of changing things. I think the thing for me that'll be really interesting to see what, I guess, aspects of this carry on after isolation is no longer, or, you know, the social distancing isn't as, you know, adamantly required what, you know, what, uh, what I guess our dating practice is going to look like. Are people going to be willing to tolerate less of the bad behavior because people have had to make adjustments to stay connected to other humans <laughs> in this time? The pandemic is not only changing how we look at romantic relationships, but friendships as well. I do think there's been some interesting, I guess, kind of shifts in terms of how people are approaching friendship. There's someone, I fo- another academic I follow on Twitter, so she refers to this person as her pandemic bay, but like it's not a romantic, at least like sexually romantic relationship. She calls it like a pl- like a romantic platonic relationship in the sense that because I think the the pl- the pandemic bay is is a gay man and she is a lesbian, but like they you know are providing each other like that emotional comfort because they live in the same apartment building we can, you know, provide each other that emotional and psychological support that we would get from someone perhaps, you know, that we're in a relationship with, but, you know, without the the sexual aspects, you know, so I think, I think definitely, I think people are probably kind of real reevaluating what friendships mean <laughs> in this time, um, especially since, you know, a lot of people just by virtue of, you know, kind of how our culture in the U.S. and, you know, a lot of people move away from families you know, and so you don't live close to your family, but you do probably live close right to your friends. So your friends kind of become that, that those, that uh, kind of emotional support that you rely on, um, that people often rely on romantic relationships for, but it's kind of hard to start those in the midst of something like this. So it's, yeah, there's all of these, I think, really kind of complicated factors. For people who are living alone, this time might be particularly isolating. One thing I think that's been so interesting about how people are dealing with the isolation is uh, we've seen huge upticks in people adopting pets. (laughs) There's literally like kind of the whole reference to the pandemic puppy. Imagine if this pandemic had happened a decade ago or even five years ago. Perhaps it would even be more isolating. But now we have social media, platforms for video calls, and all sorts of technology that is hopefully easing the isolation for some people. 
And in some of these platforms, online communities are flourishing. I think that's part of one way, right? People are trying to kind of cope with the the isolation aspect. Um, but I think, especially with like Twitter, um, and to an extent, I think also with uh, some of these other platforms like TikTok, things like that, um, you're seeing all of these different kind of like challenges that, you know, on like TikTok. So people, you know, kind of have this way of like doing something interactive that, you know, can kind of be part of this broader thing that people are participating in. Um, what I'm seeing personally on Twitter is a lot of people are suffering from things like insomnia, having, you know, this like kind of time, (laughs) I don't even know if it's like time dilation, right? They're just hard to kind of discern like what day it is, what time of day it is, um, because a lot of people are still working from home. Uh, And so, you know, people are, you know, kind of turning to Twitter as like this space to kind of get some interaction, find out what's going on. There's all kinds of like running jokes and other kinds of things that are kind of going on just to kind of keep people entertained because they're not interacting with people in person. But, you know, I think also there's things that people are doing. So they're doing Zoom parties. So, you know, like everybody logs on to Zoom for, you know, we all have breakfast or a meal or brunch or whatever together, or people are doing Zoom parties to like watch movies, (laughs) You know, so there is, you know, those those kind of psychological impacts of feeling like you are part of something that's bigger than you, right? You're feeling connected to people besides just yourself. Relying on these dating sites also changes what we're looking for, at least initially, in a romantic partner. In person, initial attraction may be physical. Gee, that person sure looks cute. But on the dating sites, there's so much more that can be learned about a potential person up front before you even engage with them in conversation. So much so that people can vet potential romantic partners on political stance, religion, race, or host of other things. You can even vet people on what they think about Black Lives Matter. I think it's escalated with uh, the election of Donald Trump. Uh, You've literally had Donald, like pro Donald Trump dating sites launch. And then you've seen on more mainstream dating apps like OkCupid, um, you there, if you answer certain match questions, banners that are like pro ACLU or pro Planned Parenthood banners appear on your profile. People are putting you know, Black Lives Matter, no Trump voters in the profile. Um, And so these are things that like, you know, if we go back, you know, even, you know, before 2016, like people weren't doing that. So there's, there's very much, I think, uh, the users themselves and also the platforms, I think, are trying to respond to the political moment in a variety of ways in terms of how the the websites are structured, um, which, you know, helps in that kind of vetting process of people being able to decide who they'll even give their time to. There's been a ton written about kind of the filtering systems within all of these different applications and how those filtering systems perpetuate inequality, um, you know, through the algorithms. Some apps, you know, will like kind of suggest daters to you based on, you know, questions you've answered or whatever it is. But then also, you know, the way you can just like completely filter people out from your purview. What the last five years have shown, I feel, is that uh, there, there is 
a greater willingness to, you know, limit your dating pool if it means you don't have to deal with certain political views, certain social views, which, you know, I mean, the kind of flip side of that then, right, are the groups of people who think that they're being marginalized, you know, as white men, as conservatives, right, then their response becomes to do things like create white people meet or, you know, uh, Trump supporter dating websites, right, because they're being discriminated against on the broader applications. Like, so OkCupid takes user submitted match questions. And I could, so I remember when I had just started collecting my dissertation data, they added a question that was like blank lives matter. And so the options to choose were black or all as a match question. And I was like, wow, what a great match question. Uh, and, you know, for me, I was super curious, like, was this user submitted? Did the platform come up with the question themselves? <laughs> and like, there've been all kinds of other, you know, questions that have popped up, you know, in relation to Trump's wall and all these other kinds of things. So I, I haven't, you know, gone and looked in detail right now, but I could imagine that there probably are, you know, match questions right now about, you know, how often are you wearing a mask <laughs> you know, when you go to the grocery store? And I could see that being very important to people. Do you wear a mask when you go out? Are you minimizing the number of people you're interacting with? Do you think the coronavirus is a hoax? Filtering like this might even come down to a safety issue, staying with like-minded people and keeping safe while dating. I could imagine people really not being interested in the people who think, you know, that the coronavirus pandemic is all just a government scam, right? You know, if you have certain kinds of views, you know, like on a global pandemic, or like, you're not going out, and you're not wearing a mask, right? You're not doing the things, you know, to take care of yourself and to not, you know, potentially put others in harm's way. I can imagine people having a negative response to that as well, uh, in terms of the dating scope. Uh, I at least know anecdotally among my friends that they would not be interested, right, in, you know, even entertaining someone who's, you know, not, you know, observing that we're in a pandemic. At this point in our conversation, I'm beginning to feel a bit uncomfortable. There's already a lot of division in our country. Now these dating sites are giving us a way to say, if you would disagree with me politically, I don't even want to talk to you. If you are this race, I don't want you as an option. This makes me feel uneasy, I've got to say. After all, talking to people with differing opinions is how we grow. It's how we deal with division. I mentioned this to Chantel, and this is what she said to me. For people who are marginalized in our society, queer people, people of color, she would find the squeaky toy. For them, right, this feels more life and death, right? You know, kind of these choices. The, the Where people stand on these issues feels so much more personal. Yeah, I totally understand why it can be uncomfortable. But I think what is uncomfortable for one group, right, is, you know, bearing on their, you know, existence as human beings for another group. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Sorry, her dog grabs a squeaky toy here, but you get the point. For marginalized people, or people who may even fear for their lives, these choices aren't just preferences. They're the issue of safety and security. And we can't talk about easing division if people are actually scared for their lives. So, you know, in sociology, we talk about this principle called homophily. Overwhelmingly, people are drawn to not just in their like romantic life, but also in their friendships, 
where they end up living, we are drawn to people who are like us. And that's not just racial lines. That's things like religion. Um, that's definitely things like class, education level. Um, right. There's so many kind of different factors. Right. Uh, so we're, we're, we have a tendency to be with, be drawn to people who are similar to us. The ability to vet your potential romantic partners, or even find romantic partners, is greatly aided by these platforms. And this has been the case even before the pandemic, for any kind of minority population that's looking for someone like them. Especially, right, if they don't live in, you know, kind of an urban metropolis, right, you know, where you know, even non, you know, in a non-pandemic world, right, you know, there's a lot of social spaces where they can go. You know, a lot of people live in towns like I live where there is, you know, no, like, you know, there isn't a gayborhood, there isn't, you know, like, there aren't, you know, places necessarily, you know, explicitly for, you know, queer social life that you would get if we were in Atlanta, or we were in Houston, or even Austin, uh, obviously, places like New York, and San Francisco, and all those other kinds of places, right? So it's, where do you find people if you don't, if you can't physically go to a place where you know they will be at? You have to find them online. I think it's the same, right, for people of color who don't live in places where there are large populations of, of non-white people. In a politically charged environment that is also plagued by a pandemic, people are rightfully freaking out. Add this on top of the fact that a huge percentage of the population gets their news through social media. And as we know, social media is uncurated. Anyone can post anything. On the one side, that's an amazing power. Everyone has a voice. On the other side, it gives a venue for misinformation. And often that misinformation is far more interesting than the truth. This is definitely a thing as an educator that is is a difficult thing to kind of manage with students because it's like, how do you recognize what is a reliable and a reliable source for information, uh, a reliable place for you to, you know, use as a citation in your writing? <laughs> And so people have started to put together, you know, kind of these, some of them are like kind of like trainings or modules, you know, that kind of help students to recognize like a reputable source um, and kind of how the information is presented in the writing. Um, you know, so being able to recognize things like tone, um, do they actually, you know, cite where their alleged, you know, data, statistics, what have you come from? Um are what is what you're looking at just you know a meme a screenshot or like is it an actual link you know is the website reputable <laughs> you know there's there's all these kinds of right factors that we're definitely trying to teach our students and so i think that that kind of like online literacy is not just an issue for students i think the broader population you know needs better online literacy these tech companies, particularly the social media companies, right, have a culpability. We're seeing that now in the cases against uh, Facebook and, you know, kind of how they, they were or were not um, moderating, you know, the spread of, you know, political, di you know, disinformation on their website, you know, um, and, you know, kind of how is Facebook as an entity culpable uh, in, you know, political outcomes because, you know, of how they did not moderate certain kinds of content on their site. Uh, and Twitter is doing a similar thing, right? Where now Twitter actually, I think, has like opted to remove 
tweets that have been reported for, you know, kind of being, um, uh, for, for spreading, you know, false information, for sp- spreading misinformation. You know, so, so I think that the social media companies are having to respond now. And yeah, I think that that, you know, just becomes even more pressing in a time where, you know, you have these protests. I think that this kind of shows that there's this kind of huge culpability of social media, you know, in terms of, you know, kind of how people get information, how people respond to information, what people do with the information. Misinformation has taken on another dimension with regards to the protests that are currently sweeping our country. One of this wasn't a link, or even a picture. It was a hashtag. Hashtag DC Blackout. The story was that to quell the protests, the entire metropolitan area of Washington, D.C. would be cut off from social media and even have their phones jammed to cut off an opportunity for protesters to coordinate. Then people started saying that every bit of news coming from the D.C. area had gone quiet. But the problem? The story was completely fake. For some of them, it might be just an interest in in trolling, right? Like, like they're just doing it just to, you know, kind of be jerks. Um, but others, I mean, it's it's an orchestrated, intentional, you know, campaign that you know effectively sets people up to be harmed in in the real world. You know, right? If they decide to, you know, go and approach, right? You know, kind of real life actions in a particular way because they're, you know taking this, you know, information on on the internet for truth. It's hard for social media platforms to vet what's fake and what's true. Twitter has something like 500 million tweets a day. So both Facebook and Twitter have algorithms to try to spot fake news. While algorithms can be useful to comb through an enormous amount of data, they are limited. They can be wrong. And this may come as a surprise to you, but they can also be biased. We have to be careful here. There is a risk that algorithms like this can further repress the voice of the marginalized populations, or populations in any sort of minority. So there's a great book, I think, basically on this issue called Algorithms of Oppression. (laughs) Um, That's, you know, kind of literally, and there's several other people that are kind of talking about kind of race, science, cyberspace, those kinds of things and kind of how. So, I mean, we do have to account for who are the people who write the codes for the algorithms, who are the people who are, you know, kind of putting the information in for, you know, the the algorithm or the AI, right, to kind of, you know, go about doing its purpose. Um, if we look at tech companies, overwhelmingly, those are not going to be people of color. They're definitely not going to be black people, um, you know, and so, you know, kind of how, like who the people are who are programming the technology are going to shape how that technology has a differential effect on different populations um, in terms, not just uh, things like race, but also, I mean, gender, um, class, all of these different things, right, are going to factor in. In addition, these algorithms may be biased, and we don't even know why. The connections that these algorithms make are complex, drawing inferences based on connections in social media, maybe if those people have been stopped by a police officer and have a speeding ticket, Maybe if they dropped out of college, maybe their economic status. These algorithms aren't exactly black boxes, but it may be impossible to say why one story is flagged and another is not. These are complex connections, and this is potentially where bias may enter. 
Right now, on top of the coronavirus pandemic, protests are sweeping the nation. People are angry. And like so many protests in the past, social media also plays a role. Sometimes it serves as a way for people to coordinate. But this time, social media's role is changing from what it was doing in the past. I mean, I think if we even go back to, say, like the Arab Spring, right, like Twitter was super integral in people being able to organize their actions. Um, and you did see a lot of kind of organizing and dispensing of information via Twitter during like the Ferguson and Baltimore uprisings as well back in like 2014, 2015. Um, but what we're seeing now is kind of some shifts in tactics because of what people saw as like kind of in the aftermath of that organizing, you know, in Ferguson and other places where people started to realize how organizers and people who were attending and participating in the protests were being targeted, you know, because of this online surveillance. There's been a greater push, I feel, this iteration um, to, you know, people are being told not to post on social media. Don't show people's faces. Don't post that you personally were at the protest. Um, they're, so they're actually actually trying to, I think, encourage people to share less. And I feel like more of like the, okay, we're all going to meet XYZ place for this protest or this action is being spread through more through word of mouth communication then like kind of, you know, here's a flyer, here's our where we're doing our protest, you know, on Facebook or, you know, on Twitter kinds of things, which is how I think a lot of these things have been organized in the past. And so I think people are trying to circumvent some of that surveillance by not posting any kind of like breadcrumbs basically on social media. Um, however, that those efforts, I think, are still being undermined by, you know, individuals who are posting, you know, selfies or other kinds of, you know, photos of themselves at the protests. And it's like any photo you take with your phone literally is geotagged. <laughs> and then you post it, you know, to social media and like they can download it and see where, you know, it was taken. So there's that aspect. But then there's also, I think, the the thing that's also interesting, right, is it's like not just like people being encouraged, right, you know, to protect themselves from, you know, potential tear gas or other kinds of things, right, you know, that are that are potentially going to happen, you know, if the authorities want to disperse crowds. But, you know, we also have to deal with the fact we're still in a pandemic. So like people have to be out there with face masks and like kind of trying to take the precautions to also protect themselves from contracting the virus. Um, and so like, what do you bring with you <laughs> when you're trying, you know, be out at an action all day and also try to not <laughs> get coronavirus, uh, while you're also like potentially right risking being tear gassed or any of these other kinds of things. Spaces like Twitter used to be really central in a lot of like kind of getting people to get to places. And now I think there's been a shift away from using it as a way to get people to places, but it's still being used as a place to amplify what's going on. Um, and so some of the discussion that's going on right now is also the ways that the social media platforms can operate in concert with broader news media. So, you know, to push, to help push or frame narratives. Um, so I know I've seen a lot of kind of pushback about how the protests, people are still posting about them, but they're not in the trending topics. They're not um in the you know kind of uh 
there's different pages within Twitter now. And so like, you know, kind of it used so early on when these actions were happening, you know, they were dominating the, the, the Twitter headline, you know, the Twitter timelines, the hashtags, you know, that were the most popular, like there were ways that it was being amplified within the context of Twitter and its, you know, algorithms. Um, but they also have the ability, right, to silence certain kinds of hashtags, to silence certain kinds of posts, right? Um, which effectively helps to support the idea that like the protests are dying down. Like when you actually talk to people who are on the ground in these places, they're like, no, the actions are not dying down. But, you know, if you base it off of social media, then it appears so. If you base it off of news media, then it appears so. Um, and so then, you know, kind of how does an appearance of actions dying down, of protests dying down, uh, you know, inform people's thinking on the issue? It's interesting that social media can be used as leverage against protesters, and sometimes you have no control over it. And that's concerning. Anyone can post a picture of you on social media, pair that with facial recognition, and suddenly there's a way to compile a list of people that are at a protest, or really anywhere. When you are making you know, people's faces and identities public, right, you know, trending on social media, like there's this, you know, really iconic photo from the Ferguson protests of this protester and organizer who was throwing a, I don't know if it was a flashbang grenade or if it was a tear gas canister, but he was going to throw it right back towards the police. And the journalist who took the photo, like won a Pulitzer for this photo that he took of this, this uh, person. Um, but the guy, the guy mysteriously was killed like was found dead in his car. And there were a number other uh, of uh, protesters and organizers from Ferguson who had been, had these mysterious deaths in cars. Um, so, yeah. So I think part of, I think the push now is not just surveillance from the state, but because we know that uh, white supremacists have become much more technologically advanced um, and, you know, they run not just, you know, whole disinformation campaigns, but they collect information <laughs> um, online as well. And, you know, you, you put people at greater risk when you, you put more information out there. Um, so I think the general tone now is to try to, you know, conceal people's identities, not show people's faces, don't post people's names, don't, you know, post locations, um, and even trying to get, you know, trying to get journalists to push back against the tendency of forcing, you know, people to identify themselves, you know, as, you know, with names as sources. Now, granted, you also have to take into account, even as these movements are extremely youth driven. And so because they're youth driven and youth, right, you know, it's kind of a broad category, we're talking like under 40, the vast majority of people who are out there in these actions are under 40 they have a greater comfort and literacy, right, with social media and online use, so, which is why social media becomes such a big part of kind of organizing in this way. But I also have to like recognize, right, that like not everybody uses social media. And there are people who are out there participating who aren't learning about these things from Twitter or what have you. Um, so there's this interesting kind of combination of social media, online spaces, but also just your kind of traditional word of mouth. Are you, you know, kind of integrated with the community that you would even, you know, be in the loop when things are going on? 
It's true that we lived in charged times. Social media, being connected with each other over video calls, and dating sites, all of these have the potential of bringing us together and to form new communities. But they also are changing how we interact as people. They're changing how people can say what they want to say and what the repercussions might be. Will these lead to long-lasting changes in our society? Will social media have a big role in all of this? I guess we'll see. But for now, it's good to keep in mind the world is very different to what it used to be, and it may be very different for some time to come. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find out more information about the podcast on sparkdialogue.com. And don't forget, if you're a patron of this podcast, to check out the bonus material at patreon.com sparkdialogue. Some of the background music you heard is produced by me. Others are clips from I Don't Know by Grapes, 18 Pieces, Soda by Soda, Skydub by Psychic, Start to Crow, the CDK Mix by Analog by Nature, and Transmutation by Kara Square. Information about these songs and links can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com. <laughs> <laughs>